Russia is using Iranian drones to attack Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. Today, on October 17th, several drone strikes on Kyiv killed at least four people, including a pregnant woman. Russia continues its state terrorism against Ukraine. You're listening to Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This is our weekly overview of key events and trends in and around Ukraine from October 10th to October 17th, 2022. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Tanya, let's start. And let's start, of course, by today's news. Uh, several drone st- strikes this morning on Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. And unfortunately, four people killed, including a a couple of young young people, men and women. And the woman was pregnant, uh, six months, I think, pregnancy. How can we further describe it? Well, yes, indeed, the morning was extremely hard for Ukrainians, especially for people living in Kiev, in the capital, but also many other cities were affected. There were some explosions in Vinnytsia region and Khmelnytsia in Dnipro as well. Well, talking about drones, uh, there were several, uh, a couple of dozens of drones which were flying to um, to Kiev, and fortunately enough, uh, only five of them arrived successfully in the way that they succeeded to 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 to, to get to Kiev. Several explosions in the center of the city, once again close to an electric, electricity station, close to relay station. So this building on Zelenska Street, where unfortunately many people were found uh, on the underground after the strike, and unfortunately four people were were dead, so including this couple, this young couple with a woman, pregnant woman, this is a real disaster. Uh, at the same time, what we see now, we see that Russia tries to replace, in fact, uh, missiles by drones. Uh, they are trying to, to 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 use more drones because they are cheaper in a way. They um, their stock of drones is not limited, as their stock of missiles is not limited. But unfortunately, they uh, we, we can say that partially they achieve their objective because they are still able to destroy um, electricity networks in Ukraine. And today, one object, one important object, was also not damaged, not destroyed by them, but damaged. The the big question about these new tactics of the Russian army: what's really the objective? So you cannot. So this clear for everybody. You cannot win a war by uh, sending missiles drones, right? So this is not about that you are conquering a country by doing that. So uh, we have a very um, strong impression that this time this war is becoming more and more 
terroristic in the way that they are trying to to destroy important civilian infrastructure because electricity this is not only about military it's mainly about uh, civil society civil population civilians but uh, at the same time combined with their uh, defeats on the ground it makes a quite a um, bizarre uh, um, impression about what really they are doing multiple air alerts today on the whole territory of Ukraine fortunately for us many missiles were stopped by Ukrainian air defense uh, at least three uh, long air alerts during the day, which lasted for two, three hours, something which never happened uh, in previous months. So uh, we have an impression that we are entering a new phase of this war with this terroristic aspect of uh, of, of Russian army, which tries to destroy uh, infrastructure to kill innocent civilians, but no much military success on the ground. So let's describe our experience. Uh, today we came back uh, to Kyiv from Kharkiv. And uh, we went to Kharkiv, we went to Kharkiv region, we went to Izum, we went to other places very close to, to the Russian border, the very tragic places in which the really harsh war was taking place. And uh, we will tell you this story in uh, in our next episode. We will tell you what we have seen and uh, the stories that we have heard from the people. But generally, going from Kyiv to Kharkiv in the in the past months meant that you is coming from a more or less safe city in which missile strikes didn't take place, at least since, I think, June, to a place where Kharkiv is a city which were under missile and artillery strikes Almost every day. And we experienced it last time we went to Kharkiv in August when there were huge missile strikes during the night. And it, it is really something very frightening. Now we are coming back from to Kyiv and the second Monday in a row there is a huge attack on Kyiv. The last Monday we came from Lviv. Lviv is also a city in the western Ukraine which appeared uh, relatively safe. Last Monday on uh, October 10th, uh, and we described it in our previous episode, Ukraine, the whole territory of Ukraine was covered by missile strikes, including Lviv, which is, again, as I say, well, had this um, this image of a relatively safe people when people were hanging around, when people were sitting in the restaurants, etc. Now this has changed. And uh, we actually don't know what is what is a dangerous place right now in Ukraine. It can be Kiev, it can be Lviv, it can be any other city. This is something that Russians have already tried uh, in spring, and we actually in in our episodes during that time we describe this. So today, being in a in a Kiev downtown is not safe anymore, but it doesn't mean that people react on this with a panic. Uh, this is something that we described earlier. So Kyiv is, is a city full of life, full of cars, uh, full of uh, restaurants, full of full of joy. But, uh, of course, we will see how it will develop, how it will change. And um, this, uh, I would say, this, this change a little bit, right, of the geography of danger in Ukraine since October 10th. Uh, which probably Russia tries to achieve this goal. Another goal is, of course, Ukraine is uh, heading towards a heating season and uh, Russians are trying to cut 
uh, well actually to target the uh, the heating enterprises the heating facilities and there are lots of lots of uh, thinking among ukrainians that look we can be facing a winter in which there will be no heating in the residential buildings right maybe this is the strategy to uh, to make ukraine uh, freeze during the winter to to make ukraine starve to make ukraine live without electricity in darkness something like this yeah something like this but as i as i said my impression is that this is a new phase of the war because this is not about um conquering territories no more about that this is about creating conditions where people would as they probably think that ukrainians um early or later will agree to stop the war on their terms because otherwise we don't really see the reason why they are trying to destroy all these uh, heating systems and electricity systems and yes indeed this is something strange to be in Kharkiv and to have electricity we had electricity during uh, these three days we stayed in the city but uh, unfortunately in Kiev and when we are going back there were no electricity in some places and specifically in the place where our family our children stayed so it's like yes this geography of danger is changing but uh, i would not overestimate this because this is not uh, this is not that a thing that russians can control because they are very dependent on the the arsenal of missiles and drones they do what they can uh, to destroy these systems but uh, This is not the way, in in fact, to to win the war. We've been very close to the Russian border just the day before yesterday, 15 kilometers from the border. And we see that Russia is unable to advance, uh, even being very close on its territory. But they are trying to hit uh, objectives like Kiev with these drones. By the way, we were also impressed by the fact that these drones, they were not coming from Belarus, uh, at least according to the official version of Ukrainian version. Uh, they were coming from the south. It means that they crossed a huge part of the country coming from the south to Kiev. At the same time, the majority of these drone, drones um, was destroyed, but still, this is about this war in the distance and which objective is not to to conquer uh, territories but to create create panic create um impression that uh, that uh, everything is finished in this country so we'd better flee somewhere um make an impression that people would think maybe twice if they plan to return to ukraine and all these kind of things but the reaction of ukrainians uh, this monday uh, you can compare it to what we felt last monday uh, for example there were a lot of photos of this playground in the center of kiev in the park close to the university a big hole huge hole made by a missile strike uh, it's still there but kids what is incredible they are already playing inside so it's it's a big hole made out of sand so they just enjoying life inside this huge trace of the war so yeah, that's what hap- happens in fact with all these drones uh, today in the morning we've seen many photos and videos of people present on the streets they were trying to shoot themselves all these drones and there were even a special uh, special message from the police 
state and that you'd better don't do that all by yourself, wait for specialists to try to do that. So this is about this, this, this popular resistance because drones, they are, they are really dangerous, but they seem to be easier target for, um, for, for even for civilians or for civilians with armed than, than say missiles. So this, the danger is real, but I, I would not say that this will, it could lead to, to something um, important, to some some important achievements for Russia. Well, indeed, there are many many accounts uh, that people were describing how they have seen the drone, uh, and it's not like a ballistic missile which just uh, goes very high and then is falling with a huge speed almost vertically on a, on a, on, a, on a place. Uh, it's really a, a, a kind of a small avion, right? Small aircraft which is flying very low and flying just over your head and you understand that uh, it is it has a bomb uh, or a, a, a something explosive inside and when it hits the building or an object it just explodes so we we call it drones kamikaze drones right the, the, the drones which are actually um, acting as uh, as uh, bombs themselves but you're right, uh, saying that uh, I think uh, saying that indeed it is impossible to win the war only with missiles or only with drones. You need to have boots on the ground. You need to have soldiers on the ground who are conquering territories and who establishing power on specific city, specific village, specific town. Now, for those of you who cannot imagine what what the war is about. Uh, do not have this 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 impression is like you you go to Kharkiv and you see only ruins. No, the city is functioning. The city is in uh, plain form. The city is vivid, and of course there are damaged buildings, there are uh, destroyed buildings. But from the first sight, you don't see them. You don't see them. Uh, there are places, horrible places, very very heavily damaged that we visited, and you can see it in our podcasts about Irpin or about Moshun or about something else. But even even those towns in Kharkiv Oblast where heavy fighting took place, you cannot say that they are totally destroyed. There are of course very many damaged buildings. So the but the, they are not totally destroyed. People can come back and uh, and live there. The key problem is, of course, infrastructure, electricity, heating, water. That's the key problem. So when Russians are attacking uh, Ukrainian cities with drones or missiles, the only thing they actually do is killing people, is, is just taking human lives. That's, that's the most uh, horrible thing about it because you, you, you read all, all the stories and suddenly on your, on your Facebook you see that, okay, the victims were identified some of your friends knew these people. They're sharing stories about these people. And you understand you, that you're just in, in several shake, shake hands with them. And of course, you understand how fragile you are. But it is absolutely impossible to win this war with this. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I have two theories. Either Russians do think that they can win this war with just missile strikes and drone strikes, and that means they're stupid. Or they understand that they cannot win this war with that. But they are okay just with killing civilians, taking human lives, scaring Ukrainians. And that means that they are evil, that they are really this incarnation of, of evil on earth uh, now, on the 21st century. 
Just a, just a short comparison. Germans uh, were doing the same thing with uh, Great Britain uh, in '44, if I'm not mistaken. They started bombarding uh, London and other British cities for, for during months. Uh, it, it it was the end of the, of the war, but it it never uh, it ne- they never uh, managed to to change uh, the 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 defeat in this war. So there were extremely heavy bombings in uh, against British, um, which lasted for many 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 months until the positions, which by the way were located in France in this occupied part of the France, were liberated. So then the only that that only moment, if I'm not mistaken, it was a march. 45, they stopped this cruel shelling, and Hitler was thinking about these uh, these uh, bombings, like of his miracle uh, weapons, uh, which would help him to change uh, to change uh, this war and to to win it. But uh, it was clear enough that uh, he, it was impossible. So, in a way, what's Putin do, Putin's doing with these drones? It looks like Hitler using these bombings of London and and British. so this is a bombing of despair. That's yeah. that's an interesting interesting analogy that's an interesting analogy but by the way um so still uh this human dimension you uh you mentioned which we should insist on that because yes uh uh, human life is something which has no price here in Ukraine, and Ukrainians value every life. We've seen many moving images today of not only people. Uh, by the way, more than twenty people rescued were rescued after this um, bomb, uh, after this drone attack against this building. So the majority of people were uh, rescued, and even pets, uh, cats, and dogs. And we've seen all these moving images of people trying to do their best to save dogs and cats, something really emotional. And unfortunately, uh, this drone changes nothing in the war, but unfortunately it can take your life and everything will finish for, for one person or one family or a couple of personal families. So this is extremely uh, tragic, uh, tragic for people living everywhere in Ukraine because it could be in Kiev, in, in Vinyasa, whatever, in Lviv without any any difference between the cities. Oh, one emotion that it is or provokes among Ukrainians, I think you will agree with me, it's an emotion of anger. So Ukrainians get more and more angry, furious about Russians from every such attack. It's not the, the helplessness, it's not the despair, it's really angry, anger. And people donate much more money to to army after uh, after every of these strikes so this is this is what russians are doing and this is uh, i think it's it's correct to call it a bombing of despair let's turn to some other topics there was some uh, other topics this week one thing i would like to draw your attention to is a um, resolution adopted by the parliamentary assembly of the council of europe which is called uh, i think it was it was 4 year 4 days ago which is called, uh, uh, yeah, it was adopted on October 13th, which is called Further Escalation in the Russian Federation's Aggressions Against Ukraine. So what is interesting is that Russian regime, it's, it's, it's point, it is the point 13.7, the PSI, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, 
calls on the member states of the Council of Europe to declare the current Russian regime as a terrorist one. And I think this is something that Ukraine fights for for, 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 for a very long time because there are certain legal consequences when you declare a certain regime a terrorist one. Uh, and in particular, I think it is very important you know, to bring this regime uh, to responsibility. For example, uh, this resolution also calls to speed up the establishment of the special ad hoc international tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression against Ukraine. This is also something that is advocated by our friends from uh, Ukrainian human rights organizations, including Center for Civil Liberties that uh, has recently got a Nobel Peace Prize, to have a special international tribunal, not to bring uh, the information about or the investigation of these crimes to just international criminal court in the in the in the Hague, but establish a special court on this. Another interesting thing and important thing is that uh, it is a call to set up a comprehensive international compensation mechanism, including an international register of damage and actively cooperate with the Ukrainian authorities on this issue. Comprehensive international compensation mechanism. Well, what what will be the sources of this compensation? It is important that the Russian Russian assets should be the source of this compensation. Who will pay for the for these at least for for the damage of infrastructure and destruction? Of course, we cannot bring, we cannot revive, we cannot bring the dead people to life again. We cannot we cannot revive them. Yeah, we cannot resuscitate them, but. Uh, compensating for for damage right this is this is at least what what can be done on the international level and there are some other other interesting things so the resolution is very very harsh and we will remember that uh, this organization parliamentary assembly of the council of europe well had a bad story in its uh, anamnesis with russia when it was bringing back the russian delegation to uh, to the assembly and we Ukrainians and some uh, uh, our friends were just saying, "Look, this is this is this is impossible. You just you just bringing the criminals back, and uh, you just want to have your budget uh, portion given by the Russian Federation." Unfortunately, they do not listen to us. Maybe they, these people, or maybe the other people from this. Organization got wiser. We don't know, but this is a huge mistake they have they have done. Uh, we will see whether this resolution, we understand the resolutions of the parliamentary assemblies are are in in their majority are only kind of a piece of recommendations, piece of paper with recommendations with no legal legal consequences. But at least we see uh, the change of rhetorics. Well, we will see what will happen next. Yeah, this is a kind of a change of attitude. What we observed starting from the last month, it was quite a noticeable change in 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 covering Ukraine and in attitudes and also in decisions. Because besides this uh, decision about Russian regime being recognized or acknowledged like a terrorist regime, there were uh, also other important events and other important decisions. For example, there were uh, another meeting in Rammstein format. 
This time, a lot of countries participated and there were very concrete decisions about um, supplies. For example, uh, air defense systems, extremely important for Ukraine. Many countries uh, took this decision quite quickly. For example, Germany. Let's look at Germany. They were promising their IRST system since summer. And then after the previous attack, the last Monday, they just delivered or just signed papers just during one day. So it took them one day to, 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 to take this decision. And there were many other countries who were reticent about supplying more arm, more weapons, like, for example, France, uh, that after these first, uh, first attacks last month, they restarted uh, the um, sendings of Caesars, for example, for other, other systems. Uh, all these weapons are highly needed in Ukraine. And... Um, my impression is that there were kind of changing rhetorics during last week. So more and more people and more and more countries are talking about the uh, the necessity to help Ukraine, and uh, we are much less blind now about what Russia is. It, it doesn't mean. I mean, this resolution of parliamentary assembly because of Europe doesn't mean that everybody will call Russia terrorist or there will be higher sanctions immediately or deeper sanctions, more serious sanctions immediately. But it is all about further isolation of Russia and uh, should be blind not to notice, for example, during the vote uh, in the United Nations when on the Russian side you have just a couple of countries, four four countries, which vote with Russia. Uh, in, in majority of countries are voting uh, voting uh, with Ukraine and for Ukraine, and quite a number of countries countries which are still neutral. Neutral. Some countries in Africa. Some countries in Central. America, China, first of all, the most importantly, so they are not neutral. But this uh, means that they, they, it will be very important to work with these countries. But anyway, uh, this becomes uh, very um, risky for a country to be on Russia's side because nobody wants to lose and Russia is clearly uh, losing... I, I don't mean losing military in the, from a military point of view at that very moment, the war, but they have already lost their visions because nobody understands really their narrative. Because in the beginning, they were talking about denazification, they were talking about, about demilitarization of Ukraine, it all failed. Then they were talking about the liberation of some people in Donbass and maybe in the south because they were next trying to annex territories. It, it doesn't function, so it doesn't function that way. And finally, so there were messages about the importance of Russia. Important, they were saying that we are with the the biggest part of humanity because China and China and India they are with us. We are against this dominance of the Western Western countries and Western narrative. But at that very moment, we could not say that they propose an, an alternative vision of what's going on and how the world is organized. So they are. Um, they they failed in proposing a kind of a narrative, a comprehensive narrative uh, about what is this war is about. So what does it mean for, for the world to have this war? What are the objectives? So uh, we observe a kind of quick changes in tactics, military tactics, in strategies, and clearly, clearly no vision of what really do they want, because they, they have no clear vision of what do they want. 
And uh, the most important thing, they, they cannot really share this knowledge with, with the soldiers. And uh, because the soldiers are coming here, the new soldiers from this mobilization are coming here. Some of them are already, uh, already captured by Ukrainian army. Some of them have already given interviews. So the newly mobilized soldiers that were mobilized in something, 25th of September, in two weeks, they are already captives, prisoners of war in Ukraine. And they, have, they are doing, giving interviews to Ukrainian journalists. There is a Ukrainian journalist who is called... Uh, um, Zolkin, right, and uh, he is specializing on his YouTube to make, uh, to take these interviews with the Russian soldiers, and it is sometimes it's very hilarious one because you see the real people who didn't want to go to the army, who were mobilized uh, against their will, of course, and who's who are happy to be a Ukrainian prisoner of war, who are happy to be uh, to be captive uh, by by the Ukrainians, and. Uh, this also shows this this lack of motivation among among Russians, and I think this is something that clearly the Ukrainians are psychologically winning this war in terms of in terms of psychology in terms of psychology. Uh, if I may, another important use of today is that about the news about the exchange of prisoners, new stage of exchange of prisoners. I mean. Um, uh, today, 108 uh, women were liberated, finally liberated. Ukrainian soldiers were liberated uh, from uh, from the captivity. Uh, they were uh, among them. There were soldiers, uh, Ukrainian soldiers, Ukrainian officers, but also civilians, female civil civilians. And uh, the most touching story from this exchange is the mother, um, a medic paramedic from Azovstal, a young woman, which were spent uh, all the time in Azovstal with her daughter, four years old Alisa. Maybe you remember these videos of this four years old Alisa who was uh, talking about uh, she was wanting to, to come home, etc., etc. She beautiful eyes, a little kid, and her beautiful mom. She was helping a Ukrainian defenders military in this Azovstal plant. And then this dramatic moment of the evacuation, and this woman was separated with her child, four years old child, uh, because uh, Russians, they took her to captivity, to uh, so-called filtration process. And just another woman, young girl as well, uh, which never knew this... Um, this paramedic, she agreed to take, to help, to transport this girl to Zaporizhia. And in Zaporizhia, this four years old Alisa was taken by her family. She was transported to her family somewhere in the western Ukraine. And there were a lot of pressure of Ukrainian civil society, Ukrainian political politicians for sure, uh, just let, uh, let this mom, let this mom of Alisa, uh, free this mom of Alisa because, uh, uh, this is something inhuman if you see separate a mom with a so little child. And this woman today, she's finally liberated and she'll be joining her daughter in a couple of hours. And we are, as Ukrainians, we are extremely happy for this family that this woman is alive and her daughter survived and they will be finally, finally together. But there are still many people, many Ukrainians who are in, in the Russian captivity including our friend Maxim Butkevich, Ukrainian human rights activist, we keep on repeating 
that he volunteered for the front, for, for the front line. He's a pacifist. He's a person, one of the remarkable human rights activists uh, in Ukraine. He was always uh, his views were rather leftist all the time, all, all throughout his history. But he's now in Russian captivity, and we actually don't know much of the information. We hope that uh, he will also return very soon. By the way, what do you think? Why Russians let uh, these exchanges go on and continue the same day when they continue their terror with uh, drones and missiles? Don't you think it might be like an invitation for negotiations? Look, we could, we could be kind with you. We could give back your people if you accept our conditions. But at the same time, if you don't accept, we can continue with drones and missiles. It's not clear at all. How, how all this... I don't, I don't think that the, these processes are connected. I think that the process of exchange is is one process and it goes for very long time during weeks uh, the, the 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 lists of people and then there is the situation on the front line and the decisions taken by the russian commanders i don't think they are connected but maybe i'm wrong let's maybe on the final note let's uh, let's also say that russians are continuing to shell zaporizhia a ukrainian city that they declared as their city uh, the shelling is maybe if if you now talk about the most dangerous place, maybe Zaporizhia and Mykolaiv, maybe there are these these places. Maybe we will go some some day to these places as well. Uh, but uh, as as we said earlier, Russians with this annexation just put themselves into a huge trap because they cannot really explain to themselves how come. Okay, if if they did a referendum. Okay, but they didn't do the referendum on all the territories that they declare. They say all Donetsk, Oblast, Zaporizhia, Oblast, Kherson, Oblast, Luhansk, Oblast are their territories because they did the referenda. But there is only a tiny part of the Zaporizhia Oblast which is occupied by the Russians and the city of Zaporizhia is not occupied, is not, not going to be occupied because it's a huge industrial city. And they're just shelling the residential buildings in the city. People die there. So they declare Zaporizhia as their city and they shell it. They kill people who, whom they declare to be Russians. They declare the city as theirs although no referendum is held in Zaporizhia or other cities under Ukrainian control, and they kill people there. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable, what Russians would call dialectical logic, which yeah, uh, we would call stupidity, um, contradiction, uh, inca incapacity to think, to think clearly. And right. let's let and let's not forget that Ukrainian troops are not lazy in the south, and that uh, there were some analysis coming from from American media, from Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken, uh, analysis which uh, consisted to say that Ukrainians are going uh, likely to liberate Kherson in coming week weeks maybe a week, so quite short. It will, it will not last long. Uh, we cannot judge if it's true or not. Uh, I would be very cautious about that fixing the deadline to liberate Kherson, but the things looks like Ukrainian troops will not stop there in the south. They will do whatever they can until the cold, until winter comes. So imagine, just imagine a situation that in a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months, Kherson is liberated and they proclaim it, Russians proclaimed it to be their own territory. They will be 
in in even a deeper trap because they will uh, will be obliged to escalate. But the problem is that they have no resources to escalate. I, we are not talking nuclear threats at that moment, so they cannot defend the territory they proclaim theirs, and nobody recognizes it. So this is a kind of a inner and very profound crisis of what Russian state is. It was extremely risky for Russians. Let's maybe repeat it once again. It was an extremely risky step to now to, to start this mobilization, which Russian population, is they fear it. So they, uh, they, can, they, can, they may be even supporting war. They would not like to do that themselves, so nobody wants to die on the front. And another risky decision was to to, to go and to, to, to go with these annexations because it was ex- exactly the moment where Ukrainian troops were showing to everybody that they were capable to do many brilliant military operations. So it looks like they are a kind of deep lack of logic and deep lack of uh, of understanding. And I would see, I would see here kind of uh, signs of crisis you know, of the Russian state as it is, and it could lead to disastrous consequences for Russians, I mean. And let's also, I think it will be very interesting to uh, to see that the logic of the Russian uh, warfare is actually repeating the idea of the Second World War. But the they, they still think in this logic, they still use the armaments which was used in the Second World War. Primarily, for example, they were using tanks, they were using artillery. Now they're shifting towards drones, so they they try to reorganize themselves very quickly into the modern warfare, but drones are not used in the modern warfare in the way how Russians are using them, because drones are used primarily to identify targets for high-precision artillery. And this combination is, is what, what Ukrainians are trying to achieve, with with the help of also Western weapons, which Russians are not not doing, but uh, okay, let's just think in these terms. For example, Russians want to capture Kiev. If they learn the history of the Second World War, they they will know that the battles for Kiev, when when the Red Army was liberating Kiev, was a a, a very bloody battle where. Hundreds of thousands of people died from the from the Red Army's uh, side because, uh, as at that time uh, and as now, the Soviet regime, this Russian regime, just doesn't value human life. And there was this goal to liberate Kiev by the the anniversary of the Bolshevik coup d'état, which was called the October Revolution at that time. So many many people have died. But look, Kiev in uh, in that time during Second World War and now are uncomparable. I think Kyiv now is like five times bigger. For example, it, at that time during the Second World War, it didn't have a left bank. It was only on the right bank. On the left bank, there were just villages. And now you have huge city on the left banks where millions of people live. We know that Babin Yar, for example, where the horrible tragedy took place, where in September 1941, the Nazis killed uh, uh, in two days, uh, I think, several dozens of people, primarily Jewish, with Jewish origins. But Babin Yar at that time was the outskirts of Kiev. Now it's, we can call it in the center. It's not a downtown, but if, if, you, if you look geographically, 
80s, well, there is lots of huge amount of city outside Babaniyar. It, it is much closer to the center than to the periphery. So modern cities are very, very difficult to capture, almost impossible to capture. And uh, this is also poses a question of Kherson for us, for Ukrainian army, how we will liberate Kherson. Will we uh, try to attack it as Russians do, or we will try to cut the supplies and force Russians to flee? And uh, the second scenario is, as, as we understand it, much more plausible than the first one. But uh, why Russians are so cruel and stupid at the same time, with Kharkiv, for example, they are facing an enormous city. They don't understand how they can seize it, how they can capture it. Imagine you, you should capture all the possible roads, all the possible ways out of the city, etc. And they just try to destroy it. But even with modern huge destruction instruments, you cannot destroy a big city. It's just impossible because it is so big. There are so many buildings, so many roads, so many, so much infrastructure. And uh, when we when we talk about the current war, how destructive it is, we should also not uh, forget that uh, well, taking the city uh, which has one million people, two million people, five million people is a different thing than I don't know in medieval times taking a a fortress or a burg or something like this. And uh, one last point, let's let's finish maybe on this. Let's share with our listeners our personal stories, how life is now changing for us, people living in Kiev after these missile and drone strikes. For example, how schools are operating, how kindergartens are operating. We have with Tanya three children, and for us it is important for a normal lives to have children in the kindergarten. So what's yes. going on? Yes, indeed. Uh, life changed dramatically after the previous previous strikes and it continues to be so. Unfortunately, uh, there was an impression that life in Kiev was coming back to normality. So with kindergartens reopening, with school schools being possible offline. But from the first very strike in last Monday, no more schools, no more kindergarten, no more dancing, no more music lessons. So everything is closed. Everything which so everything is online, and uh, surely enough, it it, it influences the life of of families and of people in general because you have to be sure where to place your kids in order to go to work, in order to be able to do something. And I would say that security first, yeah, for sure. And we are making a kind of this uh, uh, sad jokes about yes, indeed, our kids are missing too many lessons in schools. But maybe the main lessons they are learning now is a lesson of history. And we understand that our kids will remember that experience of being in the bomb shelters and experience of missiles during all that li their life. And this is exactly the story that they will tell to their children and to their grandchildren. So this is something that will be with them during all their life. Unfortunately, it's very hard to live in a time where there's really history happens. Yes, and we are very worried about our kids because uh, they might have very kind of amputated education. Uh, yes, they will have this dramatic experience. Maybe we hope, we do hope that it will make them stronger 
uh, as Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but maybe it's also utopian and maybe uh, they will have this trauma in their hearts and in their heads, which will will be a rather impediment, an obstacle, or rather than um, rather than an opportunity. We will we will see this. We don't know the answer to this to this question. And for our audience, just to understand uh, that we are trying to work a lot with Tanya. Uh, we are making this podcast usually during a late evening after after doing. Today we drove the whole day from Kharkiv to Kyiv, but usually after playing with kids, after doing the work, after doing so many things. And this is also part of our existence. So I would say that the concepts of holidays, of vacation, just disappeared from our lives. And this is also an an interesting experience. So if you feel that we we sound tired, exhausted, well, this is part of our reality Two. This was a next podcast explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and largest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is Ukrainian scholar and journalist and in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Follow Ukraine World on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. We have an interesting YouTube, so follow us on YouTube too. Instagram, many other social networks. And you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine world. We really cherish your support and we try to share this support that you give us with many other people, primarily Ukrainian defenders. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.